0: You're listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast, presented by Brian Dunn, Head of Matheson Employment Practice. This is a regular podcast series for HR practitioners, employment lawyers and in-house counsel, focusing on the legal issues relevant to all companies with employees in Ireland.
1: Good morning everybody, I hope you're all safe and well and you're all very welcome to the Matheson Employment Law Masterclass Series. I'm particularly delighted to join so many of you who attended our earlier webinars back today. So again, you're all very welcome. Over the course of the next 45 minutes or so, we want to cover a number of different COVID-related topics, which all arise out of queries that we've been dealing with on behalf of our clients since last June. Some of these are topics that we looked at in an earlier form in earlier webinars, but since then have evolved to create a whole new range of queries and problems for clients. And some of them are topics which last... March, or last June, frankly, weren't a problem for employers, but now, with the extra passing of time, have become real live thorny issues. To assist in the discussion today, I've asked four other partners from the Matheson, Dublin, and Cork offices to join us, and they are as follows. Russell Rochford and Geraldine Carr, both employment partners from our office in Dublin, Deirdre Crowley, an employment and GDPR partner from our office in Cork, and Van Trachian, a partner in our tax department in Dublin who specialises in income tax. As some of you will know from our earlier Masterclass webinars, the approach we like to take here is not to focus on the legal detail, but much more so to take a look at what the actual practical problem facing the employer is and to drill into the solutions and the options open to employers to address these problems. In terms of an agenda, Russell is going to start off with a look at the resilience and recovery plan that was announced on Tuesday, and getting down to the detail into what are the changes that you as employers need to be aware of from now. Moving on, Deirdre is then going to take a look at some of the recent trends in the whole area of testing around testing itself, but also notification where there is a positive confirmation with the HSE and how that process works. She'll also take a look at some of the related GDPR points around working with this type of data, especially in, in light of the Schrems decision from earlier in the summer, which complicates things further. Geraldine is going to take a look at the concept of employees working remotely abroad, and that is becoming a real live issue at the moment. At this point, a lot of these employees are now working abroad for over six months, so it is creating some genuine practical employment law problems. She's also going to look at the reverse scenario, so Irish-based employees and the foreign travel restrictions that apply to these employees, and some of the trends and problems that our clients have had to deal with since early July, and the solutions that are working. The end Van, is going to talk about some of the tax issues around the topic that Geraldine will have introduced, namely looking at the income tax and corporation tax issues and risks that having employees overseas for a lengthy period of time can create. We hope to wrap up the main session of the webinar by about a quarter to 12 and to leave time then for some questions and answers. And we already have some really good questions in in the recent days in advance of the webinar, which we hope to get to. There is a facility on your screen to raise additional questions. So if there is anything that catches your attention over the next 45 minutes or so that you'd like to inquire about further, please do use that facility and hopefully we'll get the time to go through your questions. The session is in your diaries until 12 o'clock But like the earlier webinars, if the volume of questions is there, we're more than happy to stay on beyond the hour and for people to stay on the line. And we can go through as many of those questions as possible. So let me turn to the first speaker today, Russell. Russell, I suppose the best place for us to start here is the start itself. So can you just tell us what the plan announced on Tuesday involves and what it means for employers? Sure, thanks Brian. Good morning everyone. The plan for uh, living with COVID-19 basically
2: signals the end of the short-term emergency response that the government implemented over the last six months of the pandemic and the start now of a new medium-term response to manage the pandemic over the next six to nine months or so. At the heart of the plan is the framework for restrictive measures, which is basically five levels of response to deal with five different levels of threat based on the incidence of COVID-19 in the country at any one time. It's designed to allow business and society understand and prepare for the restrictive measures that the government might introduce to stem the spread of the virus, basically all with the aim of helping people to live and work to the greatest extent possible um, while we all have to live with COVID-19. The lower levels of response in the framework will have the least amount of restrictive measures, whereas the higher levels will impose much more restrictive measures up to level five which would effectively be the lockdown that we all had to endure back in March and April. We're currently, as I'm sure you all know, at level two, uh, but there are additional restrictions in place for Dublin, primarily in relation to social gatherings. It will also be possible for different regions and counties to be at a different level, to the level
1: imposed on the country more generally. Russell, looking at the framework of measures, in a practical sense, what does that mean for employers? What, they should, what should they be thinking about now? So the
2: framework provides guidance to employers in respect of employees returning to the workplace at each of the five different levels that I mentioned. One of the most striking aspects of the framework for employers though, is that it does not envisage a full return to workplaces. And that's whether on a phased basis or otherwise in any of the five levels for however long the framework is in place. And that's, as I said, currently envisaged to be between six to nine months. So that's illustrated on the slide there that you can now see where you'll see working from home is basically advised at all levels and even where level one, the lowest level, is activated. You may recall that the original roadmap for reopening the economy that was issued by the government back in May, the end goal in that particular roadmap was that all employers would welcome back all staff on a phased basis, basically at some stage during August. The government then, though, rode back from that with amended guidance that it introduced in August, on the 18th of August in particular, And it seems the framework now confirms that shift away from even a phased return to the workplace for staff in the medium term. So let's take a closer look at the different levels. Level one, where that's activated, employees should work from home if possible, but they can attend work for specific business requirements on a staggered attendance basis. Again, it's worth noting that even at this lowest level of risk, a phased return to the workplace is not provided for. As I said, we're currently at level two, and that provides that employees should work from home if possible. So, in other words, employees can attend a workplace where it's not possible for them to work from home. If employees can work from home, they're advised to only attend work for essential on site meetings, inductions, and training. So, really quite specific situations. This basically appears to be a relaxation of the measures that were introduced by the government that I mentioned on the 18th of August, which were effective up until the 13th of September. So those particular measures provided that unless it is absolutely essential for an employee to attend in person, they should work from home. So if you compare that with level two, which provides that employees can return to the workplace where it is merely not possible for them to work from home. Turning down to level three, as I said, that basically provides for the situation that existed between the 18th of August and the 13th of September because it states that employees should work from home unless absolutely necessary to attend in person. And based on the trajectory of cases in Dublin and the warnings that we're hearing at the moment from senior government officials, it does appear that Dublin might be moved to level three within within a matter of days It's clear, though, that the reference to absolutely necessary is really quite a high bar in determining if an employee can attend the workplace. And in the absence of guidance from the government on this, we're of the view that really it's up to each organisation to determine what is and isn't absolutely essential. You know, mainly based on the circumstances of the worker, the nature of the role and also the requirements of the business at, at a particular time. Whatever decision is made, you should ensure that it's documented for the purposes of an audit trail. Then moving to level four, that provides that only essential or other designated workers should go to work. It's unclear at the moment if these categories of workers refer to those which were permitted to basically carry out essential services during the lockdown, and that was pursuant to the COVID-19 regulations. However, and again, in the absence of any government guidance on this, our view is that it does not do that because the restrictions relating to employees carrying out essential services should only arise when the country enters into level five, which is the highest level of risk. So it appears that kind of similar to level three, an employer with level four has a degree of discretion as to who is categorized as essential. We're of the view though that the likelihood, the strong likelihood is that the government will simply have to provide guidance on when a worker is essential or otherwise designated where level four is activated. And if we don't get that sort of guidance, it is difficult to see how there can be much of a practical difference between Level 3 and Level 4. Then the last, Level 5, that's activated um, so that employees should work from home unless it is for working in health, social care or other essential services,
1: and that cannot be done from home. So that's effectively the lockdown scenario that we had back in March and April. Okay, thanks, Russ. So it sounds like one of the main takeaways from that is that the new Level 1 is much closer to the old Phase 4 than the Phase 5?
2: Yeah, no, it is. I I think, uh, you know, uh, I guess at the moment it's a slightly more relaxed version than what the country was dealing with insofar as the guidance was concerned between the 18th of August and the 13th of September. Now, if Dublin moves to Level (coughs) 3, which is is as expected, then we'll be essentially dealing with the same restriction that
1: existed uh, during that period, 18th of August to the 13th of, of September. Okay. And then just going back a few weeks before the announcement of this plan, there were changes announced in relation to the subsidies for wages on the 1st of September. Can you just bring us through some of the, the main changes there, please? Sure. So the temporary wage subsidy scheme was a scheme that was introduced by the
2: government in March to help employers to pay their employees during the uh, pandemic. That's basically now been ceased as of the 31st of August, and it's been replaced by the employment wage subsidy scheme with effect from the 1st of September. This new scheme will last up until the 31st of March next year, and it'll effectively operate as a payroll subsidy support that is open to qualifying employers across all sectors. Essentially, employers are entitled to a weekly subsidy of up to 203 euros for each eligible employee on their payroll. There is a cap though, as employees on a gross weekly wage of more than 1,462 euros aren't eligible under the scheme. There are strict qualifying criteria, so an employer will qualify for this new scheme where, first of all, they have a tax clearance certificate, and then secondly, and and most importantly, they can demonstrate that they're operating at no more than 70% of turnover between the period um, July to December of this year due to disruption caused by the pandemic, and that's as compared to the same period last year. The other points to note just very quickly on this particular scheme is that employers are required to undertake a review of their eligibility on a monthly basis, and if they determine that they're not eligible, they basically got to take steps to take themselves out of the scheme. Proprietary directors were originally excluded for the scheme, and there was quite a bit of noise about that, so they have been now admitted to the scheme, they're eligible under the scheme rules, but it is subject to their eligibility, subject to certain conditions. And then lastly, employers have to register for the scheme through the ROS. So You do actually have to take some steps to do that. And then then once you do that, you're you're eligible provided all the other qualifying criteria are met. Registrations as well can only be backdated in very limited circumstances. So if it is something that you you
1: are looking to register for, you need to do it sooner rather than later. Okay. Then one last question in relation to sickness absence. Does the The plan that was announced on Tuesday, does that change any of the HSE guidance around self-isolation and and similar themes? It basically
2: doesn't change the HSE guidance in relation to those two matters, but I think it is worth uh, recapping on what employees have to do where they are required to self-isolate or restrict their movements. Um, As we're seeing some practical issues arise for employers, which I think will only increase as we move into the winter and cold and flu symptoms become more prevalent, So just very quickly, where somebody is required to self-isolate, that basically means they've got to stay indoors, uh, they've got to completely avoid contact with other people as far as they can. And the requirement kicks in where they have themselves symptoms of COVID-19, they're waiting for a test or they're waiting for test results and again have symptoms of COVID-19 or they've actually tested positive for COVID-19. So an employee who is instructed by a doctor or the HSE to self-isolate will be obliged to stay indoors and not to attend work. So that means that as the employer, you've got to treat that period as a period of sick leave. So you would deal with it as you normally would under the sick leave policy, including applying any sick pay entitlement if that was relevant. It's also worth noting as well that employees in this situation should be entitled to the enhanced COVID-19 illness benefit of €350 Euros per week, as that's been extended by the plan for living with COVID-19 until the end of March uh, next year. The situation then in relation to the restriction of movements is a bit different. The HSC guidance is that a person needs to restrict their movements for 14 days if they are a close contact of a confirmed case of COVID-19 They live with somebody who has symptoms of COVID-19, but the actual person themselves feels well. Or they arrive into Ireland from a country that's not on the the, the green list. So an employee who restricts their movement is not sick. They're simply taking precautions in accordance with the HSE guidance. It may, of course, be the case that they become sick, in which case they would then have to self-isolate in accordance with the other requirements I mentioned. But the position basically that the employer should be taking is that the employee is not on a period of sick leave whilst restricting their movement. The other important point to note here is that if an employee is required to restrict their movement and they, sorry, they must not attend work, um, so if the employee can attend work remotely, then they should do that provided, of course, they're fit, which they should be. But if the employee is unable to attend work remotely in those circumstances, there is, strictly speaking, no obligation on an employer to pay the employee as they're unable to carry out work in accordance with their contract of employment. The practical difficulty and kind of trend that we're now seeing with employers is that if the employee is not paid in those circumstances, or if they're required to take annual leave, there's a risk that the employee may not inform the employer that they are actually required to restrict their movements with the results that they might just attend work. If they attend work, that could lead to a situation where the employee could pass the virus to colleagues, to customers or clients, as they may uh, not be symptomatic themselves. So we're seeing quite a lot of employers in those circumstances continuing to pay employees, mainly with a view to encouraging employees to comply with their obligations to not attend work and also to help protect the health and safety of colleagues and others. The other practical issue, just to mention before I finish, is that this particular sort of situation is open to abuse from employees, particularly where they're restricting their movement on the basis that they live with somebody who has COVID-19 you can see how an employee could easily rely on that to avoid coming to work because it's you know, practically quite difficult to provide evidence that somebody you're living with is, is unwell or, or has COVID-19. Because of that, we're of the view that, and we've been talking to a lot of clients about the fact that they can put in place a declaration or an undertaking and um, with the employee effectively confirming that they can't attend work because they're required to restrict their movements in accordance with the guidance, that they will also as well use their reasonable endeavours uh, to provide evidence of the reason for that. And that if it transpires that any of that information is false, the employer can take disciplinary action up to and including dismissal and also as well potentially look to recoup the monies that
1: were paid to the individual during that period. Mm. Thanks, Russell. That's an important distinction between self-isolation and restriction of movements because the majority of employees are generally just doing to this collectively as quarantine. And of course, yeah. you feed it through into the issues of sick pay or non-sick pay, it's an important distinction, isn't it? It is indeed, yeah, it is. Okay, thanks for that, Russell. And we do have other questions that have come in that relate to some of the issues you've been discussing, so we'll get to those at the end. Deirdre, if I can turn to you now, and maybe we just start with talking about testing itself. When we ran the last webinar in June, testing was definitely a hot topic, and there was a lot of queries coming in at that time in relation to it, and it certainly hasn't gone away by any means I suppose I I have a specific question for you. If an employer is looking at voluntary testing in the workplace, what type of things should they be taking in, in mind at this point?
3: Thanks, Brian. Yes, uh, certainly voluntary and mandatory testing are still very live issues and we're still receiving a lot of queries in relation to them. And the types of issues that need to be taken into account in the context of voluntary testing very much depend on the case-specific needs of a particular organisation. And if we step back for a moment to just reframe the basic legal landscape in respect of testing, be it voluntary or mandatory, the, the prevailing law is the Data Protection Act, the GDPR, and of course the Safety, Health and Welfare at Work Act 2005. And the principles remain that an employer's obligation is to provide a safe place of work. If we build on that legislative framework then and consider the guidelines and the advice that's been published from various authorities, such as the Health and Safety Authority, the Department of Business, Enterprise and Innovation, and of course the Data Protection Guidelines as well as the HSE Guidelines, we see a very clear position being adopted by those authorities, specifically in the TPC's guidance on the 26th of June that uh, testing is only currently mandated in certain work environments that the HSE requires testing to be carried out in. Notwithstanding that position, those guidelines and advice documents are very much acknowledging that each employment scenario is different and that each workplace needs to carry out its own risk assessment to understand the need or otherwise for voluntary testing. So a number of steps arise when considering voluntary testing and the principal step is a consideration from a health and safety point of view as to whether a safe and healthy place of work can be offered to employees in circumstances where the hazard of COVID-19 can be eliminated insofar as that is reasonably possible by observing the guidelines from the Health and Safety Authority. If it's not possible because of a particular work environment to Reasonably undertake that obligation to provide a safe place of work by following, for example, physical distancing rules, then it is necessary, of course, on a health and safety basis to go to the next level of of consideration and to consider what other reasonable measures can be employed by an employer in order to provide a safe place of work. And that's when the risk assessment triggers a consideration of testing, and the decision as to whether that testing, of course, is voluntary or mandatory, comes next. And the next step then is to take medical advice from occupational health. And we've also seen some clients take advice from specialists such as epidemiologists to understand exactly what benefit voluntary testing can offer the employer from the point of view of ensuring a safe place of work in the event that the guidelines cannot strictly be observed. And the key piece in the medical advice is very much that in the absence of testing to include temperature testing or voluntary COVID testing or mandatory COVID testing, a safe place of work cannot be offered in the absence of those measures being rolled out. A point I would like to emphasize at this stage, however, is that there are obviously many stakeholders in a business that have a very important role to play in considering whether testing is reasonable, necessary and proportionate or not. So we've spoken about health and safety. We also have medical, we have legal, we have HR and we have IT from the point of view of IT security. So, the, the DPC considerations and the employment considerations are never seen in a vacuum. They're always part of, of a bigger picture approach. And the other point I'd like to canvas at this stage as well is that we heard earlier in Matheson on our webinar that we hosted in association with the DPC, we heard Dale Sunderland, Deputy Commissioner there, very much say that mandatory testing would need to be approached very carefully indeed and there was certainly no indication that that would receive support from the DPC. It wasn't ruled out as, as a potential option but certainly and um, there's a very high bar to reach indeed in terms of compliance there in order to justify mandatory testing and I think an interesting point to hear for those attending today is that many organisations are considering the merits or otherwise of vol- voluntary and mandatory testing. But in our experience, if testing is indeed employed in a workplace because of the various recommendations from experts, then that testing is very much voluntary in nature as distinct from mandatory. So Mm -hmm. the key message on that issue is that a case-by-case approach needs to be taken by each workplace.
1: And it's interesting, Deirdre, as you and I both know, some clients are already considering the possibility of mandatory vaccinations when we get to the point of having vaccinations. So it's interesting just to see the range of uh, options open to employers that they are prepared to consider and we can talk about that later if we, we have time at the end. One observation though on the testing is the practical difficulty is that it, it generates a huge amount of personal data which the employer may then need to process and for many of our clients that may mean transferring that data to the US and however difficult that was before post the Schrems decision that has come out in the summer it's now that little bit more complex. So at this point in time How does an employer that needs to transfer that type of data to the US that is relying on model clauses agreements do so when they are probably quite certain that it is open to surveillance authorities to access that data?
3: Yes, and this is a key issue, Brian, currently for everybody today and the whole question of the lawful transfer of personal data to jurisdictions outside the EEA specifically to the US, of course, which is a key concern for Irish business. That is a matter that unfortunately is shrouded in uncertainty at the moment, arising from the Shrems 2 decision. So Mm. moving on in, in the slides there, please, Susan, if we look at the Shrems decision, we see that it has resulted in a situation whereby the original position in terms of the transfer lawfully of international data which existed pre-Trems one was that a number of different approaches could be used to transfer data. And we have a picture of Max Frems on our slide here today. We're not joined by Max Frems, but certainly he seems to be the main protagonist in, in advocating data subject rights. And we see that he has created a legacy in our legal system, which has a direct impact on the daily business of those involved in transferring data to the jurisdictions outside of the EEA. In short, the outcome of SHREMS 2 on the 16th of July was that the successor to Safe Harbor called Privacy Shield is now deemed null and void. And that is very clearly null and void with effect from the 16th of July. For those of you who were using Privacy Shield as a method to regularize the transfer of your international personal data, that can no longer be used. And I would like to take the opportunity to address the confusion, which was created by guidance published by the ICO, the um, Information Commissioner in the UK, which said that there was a grace period for Privacy Shield post Schrems 2. Mm-hmm. The European Data Protection Board came out very clearly subsequent to that notice to say that that is not the case. There is no grace period and that Privacy Shield is no longer. So we're then left with the scenario as to how we do regularise our transfer of international data and there are a number of options remaining. The the option that I'm going to focus on today is the model clauses option. The others, of course, being adequacy or a derogation whereby there may be an exception. But model clauses agreements are a form of agreement that are used in the vast majority of cases. And we now see from SHREMS 2 that the standard drafting that was communicated to us in 2014 by the Commission can no longer be relied on in exclusivity we must have separate contractual clauses in our model clauses agreement that address this issue of third-party access to data in the importer country. So just to distill that into a practical example, if you're transferring HR data from Ireland to the US, the first question you ask yourself is what are the laws of the local country and do local authorities, specifically surveillance authorities, have access to the data? We know from SHRAMS too that they do in the US. Therefore, that triggers the next part of our three-part verification test, which is the consideration of the types of data being processed. If it's vanilla HR data, which is uncontroversial, then obviously the extent of additional contractual clauses will be managed. However, if higher risk data such as previous criminal records or health data are processed by way of transfer to the U.S., then additional contractual terms will be necessary. And we encourage clients there to use a variety of tests, but a nice take home from today's session is the use of a clause which requires the data importer, that's the entity on the U.S. side, to notify you as data exporter if they have received a request from a US surveillance authority for access to personal data, that request then triggers a protocol whereby there is a process of communication with you as the exporter and controller, and that transfer of data can be better managed in that way. Furthermore, there's a security approach that can be taken. The encryption of documentation is helpful. And finally, then, we also apply the tests that are set out in the GDPR itself that the Commission looks at when it's testing the adequacy. Measures, and that's a test set out in Article forty-five too. So yes, it's created a complication for the transfer of data, and it's created additional work. And we are waiting eagerly for further guidance from the European Data Protection Board on this issue.
1: Mm. And of course, we're inclined to just think of this in the context of Ireland transferring data to the US. But post Brexit, we could be in the exact same scenario with transferring data out of Ireland to the UK.
3: Indeed, and we're preparing, Brian. Unfortunately, for a no-deal scenario, um, it certainly doesn't look positive. Obviously, that may change prior to 31 December. But Hmm. in the event that there is a no-deal scenario, the UK does become a third country and the same rules apply to the UK from that point onwards.
1: Okay, thanks, Deirdre. Geraldine. if I can turn to you now just to talk about some of the issues being raised by remote workers. When so many of these employees moved home or moved to a second home in a foreign jurisdiction or whatever it may have been last March, it wasn't an issue because none of us thought we would still be here six months later. Six months later, it is definitely becoming an issue. So I suppose I have two particular questions for you. Can you just bring us through what those issues are and also what guidance we can give employers to start trying to manage this issue?
4: Sure. Thanks, Brian. The, I suppose the primary risk is that You know, it's it's both an employment and a tax risk. So from the employment side, the risk is that employees may over time become entitled to mandatory employment rights in the country in which they have relocated to. So what this means is that an employee may claim entitlement to certain employee benefits in that country, which, for example, might be more favorable than what they're entitled to under Irish law or you know, another risk is that in the event of the employee's dismissal, they might seek to challenge that dismissal through the laws of the country in which they've relocated to. And I guess the practical reality of this for employers might be that employers then need to take account of or need to take advice from local counsel in that country to in which the employee is based when, you know, considering a dismissal or change to terms and conditions. And that risk can be significant, I suppose, again, depending on the country to which they've relocated to. So if you take, for example, an employee who has returned home to France, and there are very specific procedures that need to be followed to effect a dismissal in France, and there are mandatory severance payments that need to be made, and the risks for non-compliance with that can be significant for an employer. So, I suppose the practical upshot of that is that employers will need to consider laws of various jurisdictions where they have employees who have relocated abroad. But I suppose to to talk about how to manage the risk, we've been dealing with a lot of companies on this issue recently. And it really comes back to a review of the Rome Convention choice of law rules. And those rules are they're quite complicated in terms of how they operate. So it does involve a very detailed fact analysis as to the employee involved. But if you assume that, you know, an Irish business here has employees employed by an Irish entity under contracts of employment governed by Irish law and one of those employees has let's say relocated to their home country at the start of the COVID pandemic and they're still there then the general position to assess the relevant law applicable to that employee's employment in the case of their employment contract would be to look at the mandatory employment rights in the country in which they are habitually carrying out their work even if they are temporarily employed in another other country. So that's the first test. If you have an employee who doesn't habitually carry out work in any one particular country, then the law of the country in which the employer's company's place of business is will be the applicable law. So let's say if the business was based in Ireland, then that would be back to Irish law. And then there is a, a, a catch-all or a caveat that covers a situation where it appears from the circumstances as a, as a whole that the contract is more closely connected with one particular country than the law of that country shall apply. So, I suppose practically, what we would advise employers who have issues with employees currently based abroad and working remotely from those countries would be to continue engaging with those employees and emphasise that the arrangement whereby they have relocated abroad is is temporary in nature and that they do habitually work in Ireland, that the arrangement will be kept under review and also, I think, consider the long-term strategy so employers should be looking at, you know, are they going to require those employees to come back to Ireland and to work from their place of work in Ireland, to work remotely from Ireland. And if so, employers should be engaging with employees about that now and, and setting a return to, to Ireland date as well for,
1: so to allow employees to plan their return. Mm. And you and I have both seen clients find themselves in a, a standoff situation of employees where. Their default step is to require the employee to come home and the employee is refusing to do so. So can an employer require an employee that is working from home in a firm? to move back to Ireland to work from home here?
4: Yeah, they can. I mean, it's it's going to depend on, again, the facts of that particular situation. So, I mean, I've seen some situations where an employee is claiming that they are too anxious to take a flight back to Ireland, that they are suffering from perhaps anxiety and stress as a result of uh, the COVID pandemic. And those issues will need to be considered by an employer to consider whether the employer is acting reasonably. But at the same time, An employer can reasonably require an employee to return to Ireland if where Ireland is specified as their place of work in their contract. And obviously any request will need to be considered in light of any government guidance on foreign travel, both in the country in which the employee is based or in which they're coming from, and also the guidelines here in terms of employees coming into or persons coming into Ireland from abroad will need to be complied with um, in terms of reminding them that they may need to restrict their movements for 14 days depending on the country that they're coming from. But I think it's worth pointing out that the government's plan that was released on Tuesday does note that persons can travel, that there are no restrictions on persons coming into Ireland from other countries. There's just simply, there are guidelines on how they should restrict their movements and and so on when they do come into Ireland from another country. And that plan also recognises that some people will need to travel for essential reasons. And it, it specifies that that includes essential work. So depending on the nature of the employee's role as well, an employer may be able to
1: rely on that. Okay. And how should employers be dealing with employees that do go on foreign travel for personal reasons?
4: It's come up a lot and some employers will want to be able to restrict their employees from taking holidays abroad at this particular time. But I suppose the reality is employers can't restrict employees' personal travel, but they can... I suppose, introduce some policies and procedures around that in the sense that they can require that employees disclose any overseas travel to the employer so that employers can address their own health and safety risks in the workplace. So that's the kind of legitimate or reasonable ground for the employer requesting that detail. And then as well as that, with any holiday approval requests, You know, employers can consider whether it's feasible for an employee to travel abroad, particularly if they're going to a country that's currently not on the green list. The employee will be required to restrict their movements for 14 days when they come back. And an employer can consider whether it can improve that holiday request, given the amount of time the employee may be unable to work if that type of work cannot be carried out at home. And then also we are seeing a number of employers require employees to take either additional annual leave or unpaid leave to accommodate that period of time where they may need to restrict their movements on a return from a non-green list country. So those are kind of some factors which might deter employees from taking overseas travel. Mm.
1: And it seems to me that one of the main things employers are overlooking in this, in the analysis for somebody abroad, is the idea of taking foreign legal advice in regard to the particular problem. So to go back to your point, you'd have to get to a point where if you were dismissing an employee that was originally hired in Ireland, now based in France for the past six months, that dismissal would have to be procedurally fair and correct from both an Irish and a French law perspective which just makes it an even more time-consuming and complex process for the employer.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And I suppose the longer the employee is based abroad, then the greater the risk becomes a, a reality. But it's, it's certainly a risk, not just on the employment side, but
1: also on the tax side as well. Which leads me on to Van. Um, Van, if I can turn to you, I suppose, with the general question... What are the tax risks in having an employee abroad for a lengthy period of time?
5: Sure, Ryan. So I suppose two main issues arise for consideration where employees are carrying out their duties of employment abroad. I suppose the first and perhaps most immediate issue is whether it gives rise to a payroll tax obligation for the employer. And the second issue of perhaps greater concern to employers is whether an employee's presence abroad could give rise to a foreign corporation tax issue. So effectively, could the employee's presence trigger a permanent establishment in the other country where the, where the duties are being carried on. So on the payroll tax side, I, I think at the outset, it's important for employers to differentiate its ob- obligation to operate payroll taxes from the individual's underlying tax liability in the end in that country. And of course, ideally, from an administrative perspective, you would hope that these two should align in that an employer you'd hope should have dispensation from operating payroll taxes where an individual may have a full exemption from in- income taxes in that country under the terms of a double tax treaty, assuming one's in place between Ireland and the other country at issue. But that's not always the case. And, and there may be technical conditions that employers need to satisfy themselves of in order to avail of a payroll tax dispensation. Um, so for example, if we were to look at the reverse scenario uh, of effectively a non-Irish employer with an employee on the ground in Ireland, the strict technical obligation on the foreign employer to operate Irish payroll taxes, kicks in where where any duties are carried out in Ireland. Now, whilst there are dispensations that can be availed of by employers, um, I think it's it's important to note that if the individual spends in excess of 60 working days in Ireland, the employer in that case must make an application to the Irish revenue uh, to effectively seek advanced approval and to seek a dispensation from the strict obligation to operate payroll taxes. And They actually only have 30 days to make this application from the, the date of arrival into Ireland. So You can see in many cases, that just may not be practically feasible. So whilst this reverse scenario isn't strictly relevant to the discussion we're having now of you know employees going abroad uh, outside of Ireland, I think Ireland's strict rules on the, on the payroll tax side do act as a very useful reference point that, and a salient kind of reminder and warning of the key issues. From a corporation tax perspective then, the first question is really whether Ireland has a tax treaty with the country in question. So assuming there is a tax treaty in place, then the analysis is likely to hinge on whether an individual's presence abroad gives rise to a permanent establishment or or commonly referred to as a a PE. And as some listening today may be aware, there's broadly two tests in which a PE can be triggered in another country. One is where the company has a fixed place of business in the other country in which the business of the company is wholly or partly carried on. And the second is where a, a dependent agent of the company has and habitually exercises in that other country an authority to conclude contracts in the name of the company. Um, And look, different countries are kind of well known for taking differing views on the substance that may trigger a a PE. And you know, some of the large European countries, for example, in particular, like like Italy and France, would be well known for taking particularly aggressive PE positions on occasion. So I think that the summary here is, it really is not only fact dependent in terms of what the employee is is doing abroad, uh, it's also very much country dependent in terms of where the employee is based.
1: And it does seem to have come as a surprise to some clients at least that having an employee outside of the jurisdiction for that lengthy period of time could have separate tax problems. Other clients we've spoken to about this, they are kind of talking already about the 183-day rule and there is this perception that as long as the employee is back in Ireland, back home within before they reach the 183 days, that then the problem is addressed. So a couple of questions on this. First of all, does the 183-day rule, is it as simple as that? And if it is, does this just apply to income tax or is it corporation tax as well? Yeah, the short answer is, well, it's unfortunately, as a lot of these things are, it's not
5: as simple as that. It's probably more focused on, on income tax and the payroll tax position. But the background here is that, you know, assuming there's a double tax treaty in place between Ireland and the other country at issue, the employment income article in that, in that tax treaty will generally exempt an individual from personal taxes in the country where the duties are being carried out on a short-term basis, provided no more than 183 days are spent there, typically in a a rolling 12-month period, and and certain other conditions are satisfied. But staying below 183 days doesn't provide a silver bullet to employers. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think the key takeaways for employers here are that, first of all, there are other conditions that need to be satisfied over and above the simple days test of spending less than 183 days in the country. And second of all, as I've kind of mentioned a couple of moments ago, the employer's payroll tax obligations don't always necessarily align with the underlying tax position under the tax treaty uh, for Mm -hmm. the employee. And there may be further conditions that an employer needs to satisfy itself in order to avail of a payroll tax dispensation. I think just maybe staying on the topic, Ryan, like in terms of the corporation tax PE question, whilst there is no magic to the 183-day number, breaching 183 days or, or six months can be of some relevance in the sense that you know the PE test assumes that th- there needs to be a certain degree of permanency uh, before a PE can be established. And whilst, whilst there isn't a bright line test on the exact day spent abroad, often staying below the six-month mark, for example, would significantly reduce the risk of a PE being established. And I think it's worth pointing out here that the OECD published some very helpful guidance in early April, so very early on in the pandemic. And it sought to address various international tax challenges resulting from, from COVID-19, including respective PEs. And the essence of, of this aspect of the guidance was to focus on the degree of permanency that a PE must have. And it suggested that it's unlikely that a PE will be triggered solely on account of COVID-related presence in a country. And the guidance specifically used this phrase "It said, you know, it relied on the force majeure nature of the, of the current circumstances. But here we are now, as you've alluded to, you know, six months on, where we probably didn't expect to be from the onset of the pandemic. And if an individual's presence abroad working for their employer has become the new norm over time, then I think it's certainly open to debate whether you can still be relying on that guidance to the effect that the, the presence abroad is a force majeure. So I think in summary on the PE issue, once you're dragging on past six months, you know, employers do need to be, be more alive to the risk of triggering a,
1: a, a PE. Mm-hmm. And it feeds back then into Geraldine's point about where an employee is habitually performing their duties. So it is end up helping the other argument.
5: Indeed.
1: That's absolutely. In yes. detriment. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Thanks for that, Fahan. And if anybody is interested in a little bit more detail on the tax issues around this, Fahan has a very helpful article with one of the senior Susan Doris-Obando from Our Group, which points the, the, the webinar as well. So that brings us to the end of the main content session what we'd like to do now is just very quickly go into a, a quick poll with some questions relating to the, the issues we've discussed over the last 40 minutes. There are five questions there if you want to scroll down, and we'll just give you a couple of minutes with them. But as you'll see, they cover a lot of the themes we've been talking about. The first there is, have you advised staff yet that they will possibly be working from home until 21? This is obviously a topical issue in that a lot of employers are still trying to work out their strategy in terms of When they are going back to the office and the plan announced on Tuesday does perhaps change that further. The second question then is, are you conducting any level of employee testing on site? And it'll be interesting to see just what level of testing is going on out there at the moment. The third question relates to the topic that Geraldine was talking about and and Russell also to some extent around foreign holidays. Have you required employees returning from foreign holidays to take the return 14-day restricted movement period as one of either annual leave or unpaid leave? And it does seem to us most clients are, are doing the annual leave or the unpaid leave, but it'd be interesting to see if many are not doing either. And then the last two questions relate to the tax issues. So first of all, do you have employees that have moved to another jurisdiction since March? So are you in scope to have the issues that Geraldine and Van have been talking about? And then finally, question five, have you taken any steps to manage the tax and employment law risks identified around this? Okay, so here are our results. So have you advised staff that they will possibly be working from home until summer 2021? Yes, 12% have. So that's interesting. Russell, do you want to comment on that in light of the plan announced on Tuesday and the fact that the government certainly doesn't envisage us getting back to the office anytime soon? Yeah, no,
2: I guess those figures are very high, I suppose, when it comes to employers who haven't told their staff that they'll be working from home until that far into 2021. But I have to say, I'm not surprised at all, because I think Mm. we've really only got clarity on Tuesday in terms of the medium term through the, the various different levels. And it was only when we digested the, the plan properly on Tuesday that we realized that actually what the government was saying more or less was that working from home in different guises will be required for that six to nine month period. So as I said, you know, people are only really kind of understanding that now. And as a result, I don't, I'm not surprised to see that it's only 88%, uh, that 88% have basically not have you know, properly communicated that to their staff groups.
1: Yeah. Yeah. My experience of it as well to this point is a lot of clients are still in the wait and see pattern to see what yeah. others are doing. The only ones that are really being proactive on this are probably our, our very big tech clients who have come out yeah. from early on and said that they will be working until the summer from home.
0: The financial services
1: clients are probably more in the range of we wait and see what the others are doing. And of course, the pharma clients have been working all throughout this. Yeah. The next question then, you conducting any level of employee testing on site. So 16% are. And that's that's interesting because going back to June, from the vast majority of clients we were talking to, a, a large number of them were talking about testing and inquiring about testing. But I think a lot of them when they began to realize the GDPR issues involved were coming around to the idea that perhaps it was much more complex and difficult than they thought it would be. So in a way I'm not surprised to see that there isn't a huge number doing it. It certainly hasn't gone away, as Deirdre said, but there isn't a huge number doing it. On the third question then, have you required employees returning from foreign holidays to take the return 14-day restricted movement period as one of either annual leave or unpaid leave? So 23% requiring employees to take it as annual leave, 13% requiring them to take it as unpaid leave, and 64% haven't done any of the above or either of the above. Geraldine, do you want to comment on that one? Are you surprised by that result?
4: Yeah, I suppose I'm surprised that more employers haven't communicated that employees will be required to take that 14-day restricted period as as either one of annual leave or unpaid leave, because I suppose otherwise there will be queries from employees as to whether they will be paid for that 14 days. I suspect perhaps maybe a lot of Employees can work from home, so those who can work from home will, no doubt, just continue to do that when they do return for that 14-day restricted period. So perhaps that explains maybe some of the responses. Maybe a large cohort have employees who are working remotely.
1: Mm. And then the answer to the question: For do you have employees that have moved to another jurisdiction since March? Thirty-nine percent of the people do. That doesn't surprise me. In fact, I might have expected that number to be even higher. It is positive to see that 43% of people have already taken measures to address this. Probably would have been interesting if we asked the same question even four or six weeks ago, just judging at the the trends we've seen over the summer where this question has become more and more of a live issue. It certainly wasn't something that clients were asking about in June, but it was probably July when we first started to, to see clients getting particularly concerned about this. So we'll just move on to deal with some of the questions that we have been receiving in now, some of them very good practical questions. Russell, if I can turn to you with the first one, and it goes back to the point you made a couple of times about the very strong speculation that Dublin is moving into stage three or will it will be announced very quickly. What would that mean for employers If we take, for example, a HR director that has to make changes tomorrow, if that is the announcement, what type of changes will it mean? What should we be thinking about?
2: So if we move into level three, it basically means that people must work from home unless it's absolutely necessary to attend in person. So Mm. to be honest, that particular guidance is exactly the same guidance that existed in the period between the 18th of August and the 13th of September. So we could find ourselves in a situation where we had that guidance up until the 13th of September and then if Dublin does go into level three over the next few days, we've had the level two guidance for Dublin, which is basically people should work from home if possible for a few days, maybe a week. And then we're back into the same guidance that existed, as I said, during that period between the 18th of uh, August to 13th of September. So I think practically speaking, we're not going to see much of a difference for people. I think, I think employers are already sort of adhering to the level three type arrangement with their staff in respect of those who can work from home. So I don't practically see much of a difference if Dublin does go in and the rest of the country remains out hopefully and for those of course counties that that don't go into level three well then they just stay as they are which is that work should be at home wherever possible.
1: So it's more the broader social or travel impact? I I think so yeah. We're talking about employees that travel outside of Dublin for part of their job. Yeah exactly there's as
2: you know there's 19 sort of areas of economy and, and business and society that the plan generally covers. And I think um, work is really not that impacted by a change from level
1: two to level three. I think there's a lot more significant changes with other areas. Deirdre, there is a question in here in relation to the point you and I discussed before about vaccinations. And I think I might've referred to it before as an option. Of course, it's not an option in the sense of it being easy by any means, but there are some clients thinking about this as to whether or not it is something they could even look at. What is the position under Irish law in regard to mandatory vaccination if we ever get to the point of having a vaccine?
3: So, the position under Irish law is very clear in that it's not possible to require an Irish citizen on a mandatory basis to accept medical treatment. That's the principle. The Mm. extrapolation of that is that it's not possible to require employees on a mandatory basis to avail of a vaccine. The reason being is because of the right to the protection of our bodily integrity in our constitution. And that is something that has been repeatedly upheld over the years. There is the possibility, of course, of voluntary vaccinations being acceptable. And the same principles apply that we discussed in relation to testing such as risk assessment, a data protection impact assessment and the various stakeholders having an input into that and obviously when it's done on a voluntary basis employees can elect to accept the vaccination if they so wish and equally from a HR employment law point of view the key principle is that if an employee elects not to take the vaccine that they're not penalised or in any way treated less favourably because of that.
1: And then did I have one other question for you that has come in in relation to the the model clauses agreement and the media attention around the data protection commissioners order to Facebook last week to stop using these type of agreements. So what does that mean for employers that are trying to rely upon these type of agreements to transfer testing data to the US?
3: Yeah, the the decision last week from the DPC was not unexpected in the wake of SHREMS 2 in that optically there was a lot of pressure on the Data Protection Commission to address the issue in the Schrems 2 decision, which clearly said that where the Data Protection Commission felt that the model clauses agreements were not sufficient to deal with the transfer of data, then in those circumstances, it needed to take enforcement steps. This is a novel area under the GDPR. We haven't seen much activity from the point of view of enforcement previously. We do think that that one case is a standalone case that is specific to Facebook There, while of course it could create precedent that we'll all have to take into account in the future, as of now, it doesn't have practical implications in that model clauses are still valid. It's important to remember that the European Court of Justice did have the opportunity to deem them invalid and it chose not to do so. So they are still valid, subject to adequate supplementary measures being put in place.
1: Okay. Geraldine, there's a question here relating to one of the topics you were talking about, and I think Russell kind of touched on it as well. How should an employer deal with a scenario where an employee shares a household with somebody who has travelled to a an infected area.
4: So, I think I suppose the, the first assumption there is that the individual in the household who has travelled hasn't been confirmed that they have COVID nineteen. Or yes, it sounds um, like it. Yeah, so um, in that situation, the employer can require employees to disclose details of any persons that they're in close contact with who may have travelled to an affected area. They can include that within the communication around disclosing details of employees themselves who have travelled or employees who may have come into close contact with somebody who has symptoms of or has contracted the virus. So I suppose the, the advice would be to... To require employees to disclose those details, and then the employer may consider doing an individual risk assessment, as such, you know, just um, a verbal risk assessment with that particular employee to gather further details around the facts and the circumstances, whether that particular individual is restricting their movements, and um, as they if. They should be, if it's a non-greenness country they came back from, and then consider whether that particular employee can work from home also. But that would be in line with Russell's advice as well, that the current guidance is that employees can work from home if possible. So I suppose that needs to be adhered to as well.
1: And is an employee entitled to be paid for time spent at home on restricted movement following a period of foreign travel, for example?
4: That will depend on the reason for the restrictive movement. So if they've just Mm. come back from a non-green list country and they're required to restrict their movements for the 14 days, but they don't have any symptoms of COVID or they haven't been confirmed, a confirmed case of COVID, then that will depend on whether the employee can work from home. I guess if Mm. they can work from home, they can continue to do that and they'll be entitled to be paid. If they cannot work from home, then it comes back to... our our earlier conversation around what is the employer's policy on that 14-day period and most employers we are recommending that they put in place that employees should take either unpaid leave for that 14 days or annual leave to, to cover it that's on the okay. assumption
1: they can't work from home okay that makes sense russell there's another question here that goes back to the levels and it is something we've been talking to a number of clients about in recent years. One one question basically here is that the client wants to organize a group team meeting because at this point, some of the team members, they've gone six months without seeing each other, et cetera. So it's really just for kind of team building, employee morale purposes more than anything else. Even if we were in level one, would that be permitted? I don't want
2: to sound like the sort of the party pooper solicitor here, but if you look at the language that's used in relation to level one, it says that you can work from home if possible, but you can attend work for specific business requirements on a staggered attendance basis. And I think even with a fairly relaxed interpretation of specific business requirements, I'm not sure that you could crowbar in there, you know, a social situation. I don't think anyway. And then you've got the whole staggered attendance basis. So even if you were able to do that, you'd have to have sort of a a row of people standing outside the pub to come in or wherever it is or wherever you are during the course of of the social event. But all jokes aside, I think when you look at the different descriptions for all the levels, I don't think a social interaction comes into that, I'm afraid. It would be wise to you know have people come together in person to to do something like that because I think the exceptions within any of the levels for level one and level two are all in respect to business matters. maybe you could interpret that to mean social, but i I, I would probably advise against It'd be a push
1: wouldn't it? I think so unfortunately, yeah, but it is a growing concern amongst managers that the impact of a team being separated for so long is having on the team. And especially when it comes to new recruits, people who have been with a particular group for four or five months at this point, but actually haven't met any. So you can see that, that query coming up again and again. Van, there's a question here on the tax issues we discussed. Basically, are we talking about PRSI, social security equivalent in whatever jurisdiction, as well as income tax and corporation tax?
5: Yeah, the short answer, Brian, is, is yes. Social security certainly needs to be kept on the radar by employers as, as well. But I suppose it's important to emphasize that It's an entirely different set of rules, both domestically Mm. and internationally, that applies to social security, very different principles applying. As an overarching comment, you would generally expect a more long-term presence to be required in another country before the relevant authority in the other country alleges that their social security rules apply. So generally under the EU regulations on social security uh, and bilateral social security agreements where an individual is posted to another country for a period of less than two years, once they obtain the appropriate certificate of coverage, which in an EU context is, is, is called an A1 certificate, the individual would generally stay on the home system. So in this case, it, it would be on the Irish system. One warning I would have on Social Security, though, know, is that there are some EU countries that are kind of known to be quite heavy handed when yeah. it comes to Social Security and the requirements for an individual to have an A1 certificate when on short term business travel in other countries. And I've seen an example, it was actually pre-COVID in, in the context of, of feeding into a multi-jurisdictional comparison on these rules last year that Austria and France, for example, seem to be particularly heavy-handed when it comes to fines and administrative penalties where an individual doesn't hold the A1 certificate under the EU regulations, even when the presence in those countries is very much of a short-term nature. So I certainly think it's important for employers to be alive to Social Security and side as well.
1: Okay, and this the same person has asked a separate question in regards to the possibility of tax credit. So if a tax liability in the foreign jurisdiction, is there scope to obtain a tax credit in respect of it?
5: Yeah, so there, there, there should be. I suppose if you're looking at the two tax heads, in the case of corporation tax, then yes. If, if a foreign tax authority alleges that a PE is in existence, then the Irish authorities should provide a tax credit in respect of the foreign corporation taxes. But there could potentially be debates or disagreements around the level of profits, for example, to allocate to the PE and, you know, in terms of the double tax treaty between the Irish revenue and the, and the competent authority in the other country might, might come into play. So invoking the tax treaty provisions won't always be simple, but in principle, yes, there should be a credit in Ireland is, 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 is the answer there. The payroll tax analysis, I suppose, is, is different. Like ultimately, the risk here is, is really that double deductions are required from an employee's salary then the net take-home pay will be hugely diminished. Uh, Now, you know, the employee should be able to invoke the terms of a double tax treaty, assuming there's one in place uh, between the relevant countries, to ensure that they get a credit in Ireland for the foreign taxes paid. But that would typically have to be done at the end of a tax year, which could be very burdensome, obviously, from a cash flow perspective. So so that raises the question then, you know, can the credit be obtained by the employer on a real-time basis to ensure that less Irish payroll taxes are, are applied to reflect the foreign payroll taxes that are, that are also being applied and the credit that the individual should ultimately be entitled to obtain. And the short answer here is that revenue do actually have some guidance on, on obtaining what they call you know, so-called real-time credit whereby foreign tax deductions can effectively be coded into the Irish PAYE system. But it's an extremely convoluted system that, that you know, pursuant to that guidance It only relieves income tax. It doesn't relieve USC and and it has to be applied for on a case-by-case basis. So, you know, in our practical experience, we we don't really see it being commonly considered by
1: by, by employers. There is one other question in here that we can just run through some of the last ones. If an employee tests positive for COVID-19 and that employee has been on site in the premises, is there an obligation to close the office immediately? And if you carry out a deep clean to then address that issue, how long do you need to remain closed for? So I don't know if, who wants to take that one.
4: Uh, I was going to say in line with the return to work safely protocol that the, that protocol sets out various different procedures that employers should follow where an employee has tested positive on site. So it talks about isolating the employee, looking reviewing the contact tracing, considering what persons that person may have been in contact with, carrying out a deep clean. So it doesn't necessarily prescribe closing the site straight away. But I guess maybe the the result of the employer's risk assessment on it might deem it necessary to close the the site or at least part of it for a period of time. But the protocol doesn't specify that. So it specifies other measures like the contact tracing, isolating that particular employee, ensuring they get a taxi home or to, to the doctor and things like that.
1: And I think it underlines the importance of knowing who is coming into the building and, and at any one time so that if they are tested positive, you're able to identify who else was there at that time, where they were in the building, because the advice may be you don't need to do a deep clean of all five floors if they were only in the car park and one other floor. But I think your point is right, Geraldine. It's, it's a case-by-case assessment as to, to what is involved. Geraldine, there's another question here that relates to foreign travel, though it's coming the other way. We obviously have these 14-day restricted movement requirements, but the question here is about somebody coming in from abroad for a short visit. They're a technical expert by the looks of it in a particular. sector, And they're coming for a, a site visit that they can't conduct remotely, but it's likely only to last one day. So they're faced with a scenario where they would travel to Ireland, have to stay in a hotel perhaps for 14 days, then go on site for a day and then go home. Is there any exception to that rule? Have we seen any work around to that type of situation?
4: That's a bit of a gray area. So I suppose mm-hmm. the, if you look on the gov.ie website around restricting movements for persons who come into Ireland from a country that's not on the green list. It does say that anyone who comes into Ireland, with the exception of people coming from Northern Ireland, do need to restrict their movements and it sets out what that entails. We had seen a comment in the earlier plan that was published which did note that essential workers may be excluded from that, but there has been no further guidance issued. From the government as to what is an essential worker in that context, and I would say I would have to advise that it would need to be very narrowly interpreted as someone who is absolutely essential to a particular function in a business and continuing to operate, and that that is essential in and of itself. So, and unfortunately, we don't have any further guidance on it. So, the latest, I suppose, stance on the government website is that anyone coming in is required to restrict their movements for the 14 days. It does specify that they don't have to stay in Ireland for the 14 days, but while they are present, they are required to restrict their movements. So I would say take advice on it if if the situation arises.
1: Mm, But it sounds like we'd have to take a cautious approach on something like that. Another question here, which kind of brings us back to March, back to day one, and Geraldine, I'll just put this one to you if you don't mind. If an employee's child has to isolate, and the parent obviously has to stay at home to mind the child during that period of time, but the parent can't work from home, is the parent entitled to be paid?
4: In circumstances where the parent needs to stay at home and and minor child i guess if the parent is in a position to work from home also then yes the the parent may be in a position to to still be available for work if they're not available for work then employers might consider whether they can take some other form of leave for that time frame, so perhaps on un, unpaid parental leave or some other form of force majeure leave, which is very narrowly interpreted, I suppose, and um, which applies only to emergency situations. But I would say, in that situation, employers will need to work with the employee involved to determine what, if any, work they can do remotely, and if not, whether other types of leave might be available for them
1: to take. And what we're seeing true from March to now is employers are taking a fairly caring and prudent approach to these type of issues. We haven't seen too many scenarios where employers are simply refusing to pay, even in circumstances where they may be able to do so. But of course, we're six months into this and a point may come where employers are simply no longer in a position to, to do that or continue that type of policy. And there's one last question for you here on the tax side, and that's basically whether there's been any commentary at all from the revenue on the tax issues around employees that have gone abroad, so we can get a sense of, of what way the government is thinking on it.
5: Yeah, revenue did issue some helpful guidance, for at, at quite an early stage of the pandemic, and, and actually their guidance was even explicitly referenced in in the OECD guidance i referenced earlier in the context of PEs, and we were almost held up as a good example. So, They've added to that guidance occasionally, it touches on a number of issues, but the broad thrust of, of the guidance, at least the portions of it that are relevant to this topic, you know, they were, it was helpful in that revenue or effectively willing to disregard presence inside or outside of Ireland that, are, that arose purely on account of COVID-19-related travel restrictions across various tax heads. so corporation tax purposes. So you're looking at tax residence issues for, for, for companies and PE issues that we've discussed, and then also income tax and payroll tax uh, purposes. So that is helpful, but I suppose in the context of the scenario we've primarily been looking at today, the revenue guidance, unfortunately, doesn't provide too much meaningful assistance in that really the question is ultimately whether foreign tax authorities have issued guidance that's similar to the revenue, the mm-hmm. Irish revenue, by effectively allowing some leeway from the ordinary operation of their tax
1: rules in, in, light, of, in light of the pandemic. Okay. And then there's one last question, Deirdre. I'll put this one to you. It relates to Enzo Testing, and I know we talked about this in the context of the poll, but you're probably seeing this more than any of us because the, the testing issue raises so many GDPR issues. So what is the trend on testing now? Are a lot of employers actually still interested in this? And if they're not, why are they not?
3: Yes, I think it's still a very hot topic. It's still a very strong theme in terms of the type of advice we're being asked to give organisations. Organisations are taking a very prudent approach and really are focused on their obligation to provide a safe place of work for employees. On on a soft law point note, uh, in terms of reasonable conduct, what we're also seeing is employers take their obligation to provide for an employee's wellbeing very seriously indeed. And actually, it's quite interesting to observe in the trends that we're seeing that when employers roll out some form of additional mechanisms such as temperature testing or voluntary COVID testing or access for example to occupational health for counselling for anxiety related reasons associated with COVID-19 and attending at the workplace if they roll out those types of measures they're experiencing an increase in morale and an increase in a sense of of well-being amongst the workforce being reported back to them so that's quite an interesting takeaway away from that blend mm. of, of the legal and the socioeconomic aspects of taking a, an approach to testing that's commensurate with the needs of your working environment
1: mm. which fits in with the question we saw earlier about can we bring a team together even if it's just for a half an hour catch-up from employee morale interesting isn't
3: it? It, It's very interesting and and certainly I think Russell is spot on in in terms of indicating that unfortunately the guidelines don't speak to the fact that we can have social events at work or we can welcome people back to work for the purposes of a social get-together but that said if one takes the parallel approach to creating a safe place of work for the purposes of essential work that needs to happen where we have to bring Mm. people into the workplace and and extra measures can be offered again that are are reasonable and necessary in all of the circumstances that appears to be being well received at the moment certainly by stakeholder employees in our, in our client organisations and efforts to collaborate with employees to consult with them in relation to the types of measures being rolled out during the gradual reopening of the workplace is also being very well received.
1: Okay all right I think we can wrap it up at that um, first of all let me uh, thank all of the panellists for their time and, and input today it's been a very interesting very valuable discussion. I'd like to also thank everybody who stayed with us on the line to to go through these issues. It's been great to have you along. We'll follow up with you all in regard to any forthcoming webinars. We have one in early October in relation to some of the issues you're talking about uh, in relation to data transfers outside of the EU post-Brexit and also in relation to moving UK-governed EWCs to our post-Brexit. But in the meantime, I hope you all stay safe and well and get to enjoy some of the sunshine before it comes to and and thank
0: you very much for your time. Thanks for listening to the Matheson Employment Law Podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email Brian, that's B-R-Y-A-N, Dot Dun at Matheson.com. This podcast contains general information about Irish law. It is not intended to provide legal advice on any particular matter and is for general information purposes only. You should not act or refrain from acting on the basis of any material contained in this podcast without seeking the appropriate legal or other professional advice. Tune in next time for another Matheson Employment Law podcast. For further information, visit matheson.com.